Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. New York Police Department officers Mike Dowd and Kenny Urell knew there were two ways to get rich quick in Brooklyn's Lower East Side. You either became drug dealers or you robbed drug dealers. They decided to do both. Dowd and Urell ran the most powerful gang in New York's dangerous 75th Precinct, the crack cocaine capital of 1980s America. These cocaine cops formed a lucrative alliance with Adam Diaz, the kingpin of an ever-expanding Dominican drug cartel. Soon Mike and Ken were buying fancy cars no cop could afford and treating their wives to levels of luxury not associated with a patrol officer's salary. They were daring, dangerous, and untouchable. Until then, the biggest police scandal in New York history exploded into the headlines with the arrest of Mike, Ken, and their fellow crooked cops. Released on bail, Mike offered Ken a long shot to escape to Central America, a bizarre plan involving robbery, kidnapping, and murder, forcing Ken to choose between two forms of betrayal. Adapted from Ken Urell's shocking personal memoir, plus hundreds of hours of exclusive interviews with the major players, including former international drug lord Adam Diaz and Dory Urell, revealing the truth behind what you won't see in the hit documentary The 7-5. Edgar Award winner Burl Bear once again teams with award-winning journalist Frank C. Giordo Jr. and Urell to bring you an astonishing story of greed and betrayal. The book that we're featuring this evening is Betrayal in Blue, the shocking memoir of the scandal that rocked the NYPD. With my special guests Burl Bear, Frank C. Giordo Jr. and Ken Urell. Welcome, gentlemen, to the program, and thank you very, very much for agreeing to this interview. Well, thank you. Good evening. Thanks, Dan. I'm happy thank to be much, here. Thank you very much, Burl. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. We all there? Burl Bear. Hi. <laughs> Good evening. Um, congratulations on the book, gentlemen. Um, again, who needs fiction when you can get something like this? It's just <laughs> incredible. Incredible, shocking look into the actual, into actual police culture, and this this book paints a picture much more disturbing than any movie or television series. You know, if you think Wired, but just that's for kids. So, anyway, let's get right <laughs> to this. Burl, um, what were the circumstances in which you came in contact with Ken Urell, and what you? Uh, I came in con- I came in contact with Ken Urell. First, I'll give my side, and then Ken can give his side, because it's kind of two different versions of the same story. I was contacted by a great journalist down in Florida named Paul Guzzo, uh, who uh, works for the right. uh, the paper down there, uh, Cigar Times, whatever it's called. And he's also an author of uh, The Dark Side of Sunshine, which is an excellent book. 
And uh, he mentioned that he'd been contacted by Ken and asked if I would be interested. And uh, I said, well, of course, if uh, Paul recommended it, I'm on it. And so I talked to Ken. And after talking to Ken, I talked to Frank. The three of us came to an agreement, and then we just got, got to work. And I would suggest Ken, that based on Ken's memoir, I would go over to Ken and ask him about that. Well, same question, Ken. Why, how were the, what were the circumstances in which you came to be connected with Burl or come in contact with Burl? What it was, I had, I had this memoir going on from going back 20-something years. I started writing it in the 80s, and uh, I sort of put it on the back burner. I tried to push it for a while to, to publishers, and uh, when I was pushing it, it was, it was probably – 15 years after the arrest and they were like oh it's old news it's old news we don't you know we don't think it'll it'll do well and then what happened was the director of the documentary Tiller Russell got in contact with me and he sort of put this all back on the forefront and when the documentary hit it sort of it put a new fire under me and I started looking for uh, instead of going for straight for publishers this time I was looking for true crime authors and one of the authors I got in touch with was Paul Guzzo, who's down here in Tampa with me. And he loved the story. He wanted to do it, but he felt it was a little bit beyond his ability. And he hooked me up with Burl and Frank, and uh, we went from there. Fantastic. Now, a question for you, Frank. Uh, as we talked about Adam Diaz, you know, this um, major player in in uh, in drug dealing, why would and why did a former drug lord and, an, and later we'll talk about this, an international jewel thief speak to you for this book? Well, probably because I'm exceptionally charming, Dan. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, Adam is a real character, and uh, he, he, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, I think that. Uh, you know he's he's out of the U.S. He served his time for his involvement in other uh, drug deals, and um, you know wanted to. He's been friends with Ken for a long time, and he wanted to help out. And that's that's was the starting point for the interviews that I did with that. Right. Now, Ken, let's get back to how because really the thrust of this story really is is what happens at the NYPD and how, and we get to see how really somebody comes from uh, a real normal background. And so let's talk about this real normal background. You grew up and you talk about things like five years old, it being an innocent time. You can walk to school 10 blocks on your own. So tell us what it was like growing up, what your father did for a living, what your mom did, what was it like? You had a couple siblings. Tell us about Growing up, where you grew up, what it was like. Sure. Uh, I had a real normal background. I mean, it's not like uh, a lot of criminals give you that uh, they had a bad upbringing and try to blame everything on that, on, on their environment and everything. I had a very normal childhood and normal family. Uh, I grew up in New York in uh, Queens in one of the five boroughs. And uh, it was back in the 60s when everything was open and, you know, friendly. There was uh, no uh, no threat of really anything. A little kid like yourself, myself, could, you know, walk down to the school, walk down to the 
to the uh, elevated train that ended up in the subway to meet my mother after work. It, it was it was a wonderful time. Everything was nice. And uh, my father was a construction worker. He worked hard for you know his whole life. Uh, Blue collar guy. And uh, growing up, uh, as I got older, I started working with him on uh, on weekends when uh, school was out and holidays and summer vacations. And it was it it was hard. It was not. <laughs> Uh, my career choice that I, I wanted to do, but that's what I was doing. And uh, as parents do, you know, they want their children to do better than themselves, and they push me towards uh, civil service because of the uh, steady uh, income in all kinds of weather. There's, there's no time off from, you know, if it's snowing or raining, like my father had for construction. You had a pension after 20 years, unlimited sick days. The benefits were great. And uh, that's the direction they pushed me. Now, you didn't want to go in the same direction as your dad. You mentioned you didn't want to do construction. Um, and you didn't really, you say you didn't really excel in high school. But you, what what motivated you? What was that one thing that got you into the police department? What, was the, what were those circumstances that you finally thought, geez, I might want to be a police officer it, it was the the thought of having a steady job with a steady income and you know as you grow up you you have to uh become an adult you're not a kid anymore and you, there's somewhere where you got to go where you know you're going to be able to make a living to support a family and what was drilled into my head that the, the city jobs you know firemen policemen sanitation was uh the way to go and I took the uh, the first police officer test that came out. It was uh, in early 79. It was uh, after a four-year layoff because in 75, the city was so bankrupt, they were laying off mass numbers of police officers and didn't have a test in four years. So I took the test, and I did real well. I scored a 98 out of 100, and uh, I got called right away, 20 years old, and I was on the job, which is... <laughs> Looking back, way too young to be a police officer in that time in Brooklyn. Now, Burl, let's, as you do in the book, take us back to the history and of the NYPD so we can talk about comparative scandals, I guess, because when he's talking about uh, 79 and just after the massive layoff in 1975. So tell us a, just a couple of the incredible scandals that the city <laughs> endured, and definitely the public at some point did see a different face of the beloved police department, uh, especially things they didn't seem to know. So take us back yeah. to even and tell us well, a little it, bit uh, about some of the infamous scandals. Well, I don't have the book in front of me, so uh, we'll, we'll go by my brilliant memory. The thing that is right. important, and I mentioned, mentioned this in the introduction to the book, and that is uh, we all want to know where we come from. We all want to know uh, our medical history of our family so we know, uh, you know what, what we've got to watch out for. And each of us, we all have our own personalities, and we're kind of the combination of our genetics and our upbringing and our environment. It's the same with cities. Every city has its own personality, and shall we say its own DNA, its own characteristics. The fascinating thing about the NYPD is that it was born out of scandal. Uh, that was what brought it into existence in the first place. 
uh, back in the 1800s, you had a, a murder of a very popular uh, courtesan, fancy word for prostitute. And uh, even though I would say they arrested the right guy, he was found not guilty. It was a hue and outcry about why can't they catch the right guy. And they didn't really have a police department. They just had a bunch of kind of, you know, wannabe guys and drunks and stuff. And so they actually hired about 1,200 people to be the NYPD. So it was born out of scandal. And uh, the attitude was, whatever you were being paid, you could make a hell of a lot more if you used your head on the street. And this led to one right after the other. I would say, and maybe Frank could uh, correct me on this or give more details, but about every 15 to 20 years, in the history of New York City, there is a police corruption scandal. Some of them absolutely horrific. There was actually one in the history of New York, one corrupt police officer who was actually sentenced to death for his crimes. But the corruption in New York, whether it was in the early 1900s or the 20s or the 30s or the 40s, uh, just like a turtleneck, the cover-up went all the way to the top. Uh, you had uh, yeah. mayors who were encouraging corruption, and you had police chiefs who, uh, one of the fellows uh, that was quite notorious, went into a particular precinct and said, I understand you guys are well known for your, your graft and corruption. Well, I'm telling you right now, I'm better at it than any of you, and if any of it's going to go on, it's going to go on with me. <laughs> and that, you know, So if you look back, every new development, in so-called reforming the police department was simply another preparation for the next scandal because the the attitude of what they call the blue wall, and Ken can explain that better than I because he lived it, uh, that the police department were separate from and entirely distinct from the citizenry of the city, that there was a wall between them. And no matter what happened, no matter what corruption you saw, you backed up the other cop. If it was raining out and he said it was 85 and sunny, you agreed with him. Right. Now, Frank, we go to when Ken talks about late 79, Adam Diaz is the early 80s, and this is a Colombian-connected. This guy's in his mid-20s, one of the top, city's top Coke dealers. Tell us about Adam Diaz who he is, who he's connected to, who he meets. You talk about uh, Mr. Untouchable. Tell us about Adam Diaz, Frank. So New York City has this sort of uh, cast of uh, colorful crooks uh, throughout its history. And, of course, uh, Mr. Untouchable, Nicky Barnes, uh, ran the heroin and cocaine uh, business in Manhattan and the Bronx and even down to Brooklyn in the late 70s. Um, and Adam Diaz, uh, you know, is a guy that comes over from the Dominican Republic with his family. His brother uh, is doing pretty well as a street dealer. Uh, he brings the young Adam along. And Adam is one of these kids that just impresses everybody with his work ethic. And uh, he quickly moves up in the ranks to the point where he actually meets Nikki Barnes at one point. Um, but Adam quickly learns that, you know, the way for the way that he can make the best amount of money is to be his own connection 
to you know bring in dope on, uh, from Colombia, specifically coke. He's a coke guy, and uh, and and deal it. And there's this and there's this confluence of events that happens. It's really kind of interesting. You know, um, in, in the United States, cocaine in the late seventies was kind of the way we treat marijuana now. Um, recreational, uh, not really uh, frowned upon. Uh, its use wasn't really frowned upon. Uh, Time magazine was writing about it. Um, there were all sorts of uh, interesting, uh, you know, pseudo advertisements hinting at its use and its great effect uh, on your social life and your sex life and all these other things. So, um, you know, guys like Adam Diaz uh, could make an easy living uh, at selling. And I mean, think about like at that time, right? I think the iconic image of New York City at that time was Studio 54 with the Rolling Stones and Margaret Trudeau, uh, your prime minister's wife, hanging out and, uh, you know, doing blow on the table as well. Uh, uh, You know, a a cast of Andy Warhol characters uh, came and went. And um, so then cocaine started to become cheaper and more available, and it made its way into some of the inner city. And, And Adam... Uh, was pretty good at distributing it, uh, you know, from the Bronx all the way down to Brooklyn. He, um, in Brooklyn, he had uh, what, you know, New Yorkers call their, their liquor stores bodegas. Um, you know, their combination of liquor, sandwich, check cashing places. And, uh, you know, Adam had a, uh, had a bodega that was the front for his Coke operation. And it's pretty fascinating to read about how it all worked. And it's pretty right. fascinating to hear him talk about it. Now, Ken, you're just getting started in the police force, and uh, you don't know what to expect. But right from the very first shift, you write uh, that you learn what you're you're going to be able to do and how things really work. Uh, Burl talked about the blue wall, but but before we talk about that, what? Tell us what you first learned. You hook up with a guy named Essig, and and you and you're assigned to first I think the the S5 the 75 if I'm not correct tell us where you're assigned what's your first shift like and what you're learning and what you're learning about really about police culture right from the very first get go once you get out of the academy you get indoctrinated pretty quickly by by the veteran officers uh and we went to the 77 first is where we ended up going um right. The uh, the guy you got to remember the guys that I, we first started working with because there was such a, a layoff between between the last hire and our hire. I'm working with guys that got on the job in the '60s and uh, they're old timers. I mean, they that they were all taught the job where there was an open pad where everybody took money, everybody shared in money, and it was passed all the way up the ladder. So as all these new influx of young officers are coming on the job, they're testing us to see how how much we'll go along with them and and what we'll uh, accept or or not accept to see to see what we do and and what they basically do they they test you with with alcohol at first or a free meal or something like that and what happened with my me and my buddy is. Uh, we were walking this foot post, and the time came for our meal. It was in the afternoon. It was a weekend. It was a Saturday or a Sunday. 
and we go to the station house. It was uh, the 7-7 Annex. It was a small building on the other end of the precinct from the main precinct. And this particular building, they actually filmed a few of the scenes, scenes from Serpico there. So it's very iconic. And we walk in. We, we go to the, uh, the lounge where everybody's sitting down. They're watching some TV, having something to eat. And uh, one of the veteran officers walking around the room, and he's collecting a dollar from everybody. And me and my buddy have n- no idea what's going on. And he goes, come on, Rook, give me a dollar, give me a dollar. So, you know, as two rookies, yeah, okay, here's our dollar. You know, as far as we know, maybe it's a dollar to sit in a lounge and eat lunch. I don't know. So uh, about ten minutes later, he comes back with four or five cases of beer, piles them down, hands us a beer, and everybody's in the lounge they're drinking beer. And there's a couple of bosses in there and a sergeant. And uh, we're there for an hour. And while we're there for an hour, we had our sandwich and we drank two beers each. The end of the hour, we're getting back up and putting our uniform back together, getting all neat to go back out to post. And the sergeant looks at us and he goes, "Where are you two going?" I go, "Back out to post, boss. And our meal is over." He goes, "Sit down. You get more than two beers for a buck." And that's how we were indoctrinated right away. And the rest of the tour, we sat there as two rookie cops drinking all tour with these guys. And by the end, end of the eight hours, we, we were highly intoxicated. And we we went back to uh, back to our it was a what's called the NSU unit, neighborhood station stabilization unit. And we went back where, where all the other rookies were now, and the two of us were, were loaded, and everybody else is you know nice and normal and like what the, what are you, what did you two guys do today? <laughs> we learned how to be real cops. That's what we did. <laughs> Now, Burl, at this same time, tell us the situation with Ronald Reagan, uh, an, a new Republican president is is put in the White House, and uh, the strategy to very, deal with drugs is, yeah. is, is switched. So tell us what he does and what the result is. Quickly. It was a very, un, very unusual situation. Uh, Reagan came in at just about the same time that Excuse me, they can went into the NYPD. At the beginning, uh, Reagan made no mention of, of drugs or crime or you know much of that when he first started out. And it's interesting to note that at that time, the issue of drugs was not even on the radar in America as a problem. Not any way whatsoever. A few months into Reagan's uh, administration, they took money that had been allocated towards uh, treatment or education or whatever, and suddenly put it all into prosecution and arrest of recreational drug users. The strategy being, instead of going after people who are dealing, let's go after the end user and demonize them and arrest them. Well, that was kind of scary all the way around. And then shortly afterwards, you know how the media, because you're in it and so am I, loves to get on stuff. Uh, all of a sudden, there was all this news about cocaine, and it wasn't uh, favorable. It was massive amounts of cocaine are coming into America, shiploads of cocaine. What are the Colombians up to? You know, and, and you know, you could you could you could usually tell them what they call sociologists call an orchestrated moral panic 
which is usually for the purpose of creating repressive legislation and lining someone's pockets, everybody is saying the exact same thing. It's like an echo chamber. Uh, Every police uh, captain, every politician, they're all saying the same speech, all proclaiming the same fears, and boy, we got to do something about this problem. This problem did not exist in America's consciousness but, but I tell you, by shortly into the Reagan administration, you have Nancy, whether just say no, you had many organizations that were started to help combat this epidemic of drug use that while it was a, uh, uh, shall we say, a, a topic of you know, concern and panic and all this, it was great publicity for the people selling it. It was like pre-advertising. And... Uh, you know, you had sweatshirts with pictures of the Three Stooges that said, just say Mo. You know, I mean, it became a, a real thing. And during that time of the administration, it was a combination of moral panic and incredible free advertising for cocaine dealers. Now, Frank, with Adam Diaz, the reality, and this will be, of course, a amazing corroboration with, with Ken from his experience with the NYPD, but Adam Diaz is a, not a big guy, and and in this com- competitive business where people get killed quite easily, um, how does Adam Diaz work with the police without being a rat, without betraying anyone? How does he work with the police, or how do the police work with him? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's a, it's layered too. So uh, while, you know, physically Adam is not a big guy, but uh, he, so, you know, this, there's a thing I, I think in the underworld that people uh, don't appreciate, and that's, you know, the ethics of, of, of being a crook, right? You know, um, the thing about a guy like Adam is that, you know, in his business dealings, he's complete, he's an ethical guy. And, um and and I think that's what attracts people to him, uh, not just then, but even now. Um, and uh, another, another in, I guess that, you know, those ethics, such as they are, um, are, uh, you know, encompassed in uh, his other, you know, personality trait, which is, you know, honesty. So, okay, so if you're going to be a bad cop and uh, you're going to deal with a drug dealer, you know, one of the guys you might consider doing business with is Adam. Number one, he's at the top of his game. Number two, he's got a reputation for ethics and honesty. And number three, you know that that combination of, of personality traits is going to help you make some money. And um, I would guess that um, after their, you know, so you have to understand that Ken and Mike didn't deal with Adam from the get-go. You know, right. and, and in fact, uh you know, there's a gradual progression to the point where they're dealing they're dealing with Adam Diaz. There was a time uh, in their career uh, on the NYPD as Brooklyn's notorious badge-wearing drug dealers that uh, Mike and Ken were working for La Compania, uh, which was another uh, Dominican-influenced uh, organized crime group. Um, but th- now those guys didn't pay. And um, the, the, in fact, they... they because they didn't pay what they said they were going to pay, it angered Mike Dowd uh, to the point that uh, 
you know, he did some stuff that, you know, might be ill-advised if you were just a regular guy on the street dealing with uh, uh, organized crime. Um, being police officers and in this milieu and having the, uh, you know, the imprimatur of the New York City Police Department uh, on your chest uh, was a huge win uh, for Adam Diaz to have, you know, uh, Ken and Mike uh, be his, you know, his guy. And for them, it was a huge win because, you know, here he is. He's at the top of his game. If you're going to deal with anybody that's going to be straight with you, it's, this, it's Adam. So uh, it was a win-win all the way around. And, um, you know, I think it says something about, uh, uh, about Adam's uh, personality that, uh, you know, after all this is, you know, years have gone by, uh, he's, you know, now back in the Dominican and, uh, you know, living the life of a family man. Uh, that, you know, he's upstanding enough guy that he's still friends with most of the people, at least, uh, uh, you know, on talking basis with most of the people that were involved in the 7-5 scandal. So, uh, uh, you know, he's a very interesting guy. Now, Ken, let's talk about a very, very important person in this story and, of course, in your life, and that's Dory. Um, And you end up marrying her and you talk about meeting her. So tell us where you are in terms of your police career, um, how you meet Dory, and tell us a little bit about this uh, meeting between the two that ends up in marriage. I was about uh, three years onto the job, and uh, at that time I was uh, kicked out of the 7-5 prison for threatening a boss and sent over to the 8-8 precinct, which was a much slower uh, police precinct. And uh, I was basically starting over my career, and I was starting over my personal life. And I started hanging out with uh, a new group of people, and I ended up meeting Dory one night. And we both were immediately attracted to one another. And uh, we started dating quickly, and... uh, Within uh, probably a year and a half, two years, we were uh, on our way to the altar. And we've been together ever since, 31 years. She wow. stood by me uh, the whole way through the whole scandal. She's never, never a uh, flicker in her mind about leaving me. What did she know about the police force at that time? What did you tell her? What did she get to know? And really, what was your relationship? You you talk about how intimate you were with the precinct once you were a police officer. So tell us about the reality of, of life with Dory and life on the police force, NYPD. Well, like I say, at, at first, everything was uh, just typical Joe Cop. And uh, e- even when you're just you're a regular cop doing your regular cop duties, most guys don't come home and share that with their family and their loved ones. They separate the two. And as far as my wife knew, it was I went to work. I would make a couple of arrests. I would come home. I would do whatever I do. I never shared details of of any aspect. And uh, as things got more dangerous, it was (laughs) less and less that I would share. There was a... Nothing really that she knew. The only thing she knew was once I st- started dealing cocaine, which was 
well after we were involved with the the uh, La Compania gang and and Diaz organization, we started dealing cocaine on our own. Then she was aware that I, I was selling cocaine, which she was totally against. But my personality and my greed for money was was so strong that there was there was no stopping me at that point. So uh, she was she was aware of, of the coca- cocaine sales. But as far as anything else that went on and, and the way I was making money with Diaz and my uh, my ex-partner, Dowd, is uh, she didn't learn till practically the documentary came out. That's when she was learning a lot of, a lot of the details. I told her some of it pr- just prior to our filming just so she would, wouldn't freak out when we s- sat down in the premiere. And she was still learning things. We, we sit down today and we'll watch a documentary and she'll pick up something new. She's like, she'll, you never told me that. It's like, yeah, that's right. I never did. And, you know, I kept her, in, kept, uh, kept her in the dark for a reason. So. The, but what, what I was asking uh, is the incredible day-to-day thing that you were supposed to do. What you write in the book is that, uh, if anybody had any illusions that your police work including crime, included crime suppression, and you say it isn't, and you say most of the arrests, the vast majority of arrests, were made for what reasons and under what circumstances? Oh, yeah, and, and, and in general, most most cops, then they go to make arrest. You make, you make an arrest for overtime to make your money, to, to pad up your check, or you make the arrest for... Uh, get notice for a detail you want to transfer into plain clothes or detective, you know, it, it looks better on your record. If you come across an arrest, like there's this many times prior to the things I did with my ex-partner when I was still just a regular average Joe cop, that I we would come across uh, somebody with a gun or somebody with a, a load of drugs. And if you didn't... If I shouldn't say you. I should, if I didn't want to make the arrest, or my partner didn't want to make the arrest, and we're in that situation, we'd still handcuff the guy, and then you just call over the radio. Is anyone looking? Which just meant is anyone looking for an arrest? And there's you know, 50, 60 guys working that night. There's always somebody looking for an arrest who wants to make a little overtime that night. So they would come. You tell them how you found the gun, how you found the money, or the drugs, or whatever you found. They do all the paperwork, they go to court, they get the overtime, and basically they're lying when they swear to the affidavit that they came across all that because it was someone who basically handed over the arrest to them. Right. Now, backtracking just a little bit, or to the mid-'80s here, um, there is a, a scandal that I guess I guess forebodes this scandal that you become involved with, Um with the uh, at the Alamo, the Buddy Boys scandal with 13 cops, and then one of the right. cops, um, there's a handwritten confession left. So, who can talk to? Who would like to? Frank, would you like to talk about that? Can you talk to that Buddy Buddy Boys scandal involving the 13 cops, yeah. or is that Burl well, Bears? the Buddy? Yeah, yeah, the Buddy. But go ahead, Burl. Um, you know, I mean, the the, the Buddy Boys uh, scandal was in the uh, the seven seven. Uh, where Ken did his um, his you know his first assignment, and uh, these guys were you know running not running for uh, an operation for the drug dealers but running an operation for themselves, and um, you know they were uh, 
essentially, you know, thugs is what they were. Um, it, the New York City Police Department uh, got enough complaints that they began looking into it. Um, they got a couple of uh, officers to break beyond the, the blue wall. And when they did, they went undercover and entrapped, you know, most of their brother officers uh, who were misbehaving. The, the result of it was a huge, what, it was a huge you know, scandal, arrest, and one of the cops, uh, O'Regan, uh, you know, offed himself, uh, ate his gun, as police officers say, uh, in, a, you know, what, in a love shack motel, uh, just uh, you know, across the line over in Long Island. And uh, this became a huge scandal in New York, huge scandal in New York. And um, what happens? And the and what happens is politically, when you have a scandal like this, um, you know you react to it. You, you're a politician, you react to it. You, oh, we're going to crack down on this. You know, this doesn't represent all the great officers of the New York Police Department. Blah blah blah. And that's the stuff that happened, right? Well, you know, what really happened was that uh, the New York City Police Department knew there were other similar situations going on in other precincts throughout the city, up in the Bronx um, and, and elsewhere, uh, and in Brooklyn. And uh, what they did was uh, ignore it uh, to the point that, uh, you know, guys like Mike Dowd figured out that, hey, if they're not going to do anything about this, we might as well make all the money that we can. Now, Ken... Tell us, uh, it's an interesting story that you have in the book about uh, the circumstances that that uh, Mike Dowd sees your performance with this sergeant that's on your on your butt for some little minor things, despite this horrific job and this horrific uh, detail that you have as a police officer. So tell us what Michael Dowd saw in you and what happened afterwards. Well, basically what happened was uh, there was a new sergeant in the precinct, and uh, he was trying to make his bones, to, as to sit, per se, and uh, he was handing out disciplines for the most minor, minor stuff just to show his authority and, look, I'm, I'm the boss, and you guys are just, you know, uh, officers, and you have to do what I say and this and that, and it was... One day he was just riding us, following us from job to job. And it was a particularly hot day in the spring, but it was, uh, by regulation, you still had to wear the winter uniform, so we had long sleeve shirts on, we had jackets on. And in a place like Brooklyn in East New York, you're not in the city of Manhattan where everything's prim and proper. So a lot of the guys will take their jacket off, throw it in the back seat, roll their sleeves up, because it's, it's you know such an uncomfortable day which is basically what we were doing. And he just followed us to every job. And one, you know, one job, my jacket would be off. He'd complain about that. And the next job, my hat would be off. He'd complain about that. So by the end of the tour, I'm going into the precinct to sign out, and he came running over to me like a bull in a china shop. And uh, he started yelling at me, and he's, like, scolding me like I'm a small child, and he's a school teacher. <laughs> it just didn't sit well with me. I, I'm a young 23-year-old kid. I'm hot-headed. And uh, at first I was going to walk away, and, and the whole story is not in the book, but there was a veteran officer there that told me, just sit there and listen to him, and 
and take your medicine because if you disobey an order, now you you know put yourself up to getting suspended as opposed to just listening to his nonsense. So as he's going on and on, and there's one tour going out, one tour going in, so there's like 40, 50 cops milling around listening to this guy yell at me. And I just finally said, it's like, I could hear you perfectly fine without you yelling and pointing your finger at me. And the next thing I know, he's yelling louder and he's screaming at me, I'll point my finger wherever I want. And I just said, do it again. I'm going to break it off and shove it up your ass. And his mouth just dropped open, and I turned and I walked away and I signed out. And uh, I came back in the next day. And I, that's how I ended up getting transferred to the 8A precinct. They said, you know, I, you can't be a boss fighter <laughs> and stay here. So they transferred me basically to, it was the ass end of Brooklyn. It was a nice, quiet precinct, but it was much further to drive. So, you know, it was sort of a discipline to me. And Dowd happened to be one of the officers standing around that day. And uh, I, I guess I, it left an impression on him and, and the other guys. And that's how, uh, when I came back, Dowd ended up hooking up with me. Right. Which was a year later. Now, Burl, at this same time, you write about how this, what seemed to be quite innocent or somewhat innocent cocaine, everybody was doing it, celebrities were doing it, turns into a crack cocaine epidemic. Tell us a little bit about the reality at that time while he is just poised to meet and hook up pardon me with yeah, michael dowd really uh, this is really uh, fascinating doing research into this now i found out things that i didn't know crack cocaine was developed as an alternative to marijuana because under the reagan administration they started coming down much harder and more repressive on marijuana laws they thought, well, gee, if they can't get pot, we'll give them something even better. And that's kind of what, that's sort of the reason why uh, crack is a free base, basically. You, you know, you take the cocaine and just kind of, you know, make it smokable. Uh, how convenient. And the, uh, the effect was intense, uh, erotic, short-lived, uh, and uh, made your little uh, nerve synapses go, gee, send some more of that, will you please? And while it wasn't physically addicting, uh, some people psychologically, actually the research shows that uh, surprisingly enough, a lot of the things that we heard back then and the, the panic of, oh, my God, it's just really addicting, it did this, it did that, was a bunch of crap. Uh, in reality, the real research showed that something like 97% of the people who used uh, the drugs recreationally uh, never developed any major problems with it. Uh, though the, uh, the 3 to 5% who did had real problems with it, very severe. But the vast majority did not. In fact, I think it was something like, uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but they're in the book, the, uh, a large segment of people who tried cocaine for the first time, I mean smoking crack for the first time, actually didn't like it. They went, eh, I don't care for this. That makes me jump here in a bank full of cats, you know, and didn't do it. Uh, and then there were those who did it recreationally, just like you do anything else. And then a very small percentage who went, I think the correct medical term is batshit crazy uh, behind it. And the the myths about it that were being propagated as part of the moral panic, the exaggeration that we're going to have uh, a generation of super predators of the crack baby myth 
which turned out to be totally bogus. Uh, all these things, for people who believe that stuff and they're doing it, they start acting out what they've heard, which is as much an influence. Uh, I don't know if you put more uh, culpability on the on the media or on the drug, because a lot of it was uh, uh, expectation of behavior, much as with alcohol, where the United States and England are about the only two places where drunks become loud and obnoxious because they think they're supposed to. <laughs> In other cultures, they don't. Uh, so that was it. Was this whole uh, cultural thing of of the dangers of the addiction, the addiction ability, or whatever you want to call it, of crack being blown way out of proportion, and you have entire neighborhoods devastated by it. people who were mentally unstable in the first place, doing mass quantities of this stuff because it was cheap and available, and you hear horror stories of women selling their kids for a five dollar hit. Uh, you had that guy Bubba in Brooklyn who was a, a hit man. You know, you give him a five dollar rock, he'd go kill somebody. Uh, you know, good business, bad behavior. Uh but then again when you have something this uh, of this quality and the quality of the material that the Diaz was bringing in and that Ken was selling wasn't garbage. They were selling high quality merchandise. They're selling the Chevis Regal, you know. <laughs> they weren't selling bunk and uh for people who were healthy, that's fine. For people who were already problematic, it was the wrong thing to use. Right. Now, Frank, you talk in the book about uh, Michael Dowd. He's not very careful or cautious or discreet in his criminal behavior and his exploits. So internal affairs is on him from complaints why is there no arrests, and what do they know about, what does IA know about Michael Dowd? Well, Mike Dowd is a larger-than-life character. Yeah, um, at, least, at least he is in his current incarnation. I imagine that he was, you know, at this time. And as I said earlier, um, politically, the New York Police Department was uh, very much concerned about their image to the point that if, if, you know, people, um, ranking officers, the brass, whatever you want to call them, knew that there was a scandal happening in the 7-5 that mirrored the scandal that was occurring in the 7-7, they weren't going to necessarily do anything about it. Now, um, there's a lot of, you know, I guess, um, oh, supposition, you know, about how, why that happened, why it didn't happen. I mean, I think Mike... Uh, Dowd probably had his finger on the pulse of the political wind winds that were blowing in uh, you know in in the police department at that time. Um, it, but you know there's a there's a, there was this investigator Joseph Trimboli um, who had been involved in the Buddy Boys case um, who was you know was looked at as like sort of Inspector Clouseau. Uh, he was with IA. He'd been assigned to the 7-5. And, uh, you know, he made it his, you know, sworn and uphold the duty to uh, to catch Kenny and Mike out. Um, it's just that he wasn't able to do it. Um, and uh, as, you know, he continued to fail, uh, I think uh, Mike became more and more brazen. Um, and, you know, and so did the, everybody who was working with him. Uh, you know, it, 
they, I think caution was somewhat thrown to the wind. I, I mean, it's, and it, you know, it, it's really hard today, you know, in our, in the year of our Lord, 2016, to look back on, uh, you know, that time and imagine um, police officers behaving that way. I, I heard a thing today about a poll where uh, 54% of Americans said they implicitly trust uh, police officers and their police departments. And, and uh, you know, that approval rating is higher than the approval rating for Congress, higher than the approval rating for, uh, um, you know, just about any other public figure or uh, government entity you can think of. So um, you really have to, like, you know, so this the, the idea of even, like, reading our book is you have to really, um, you put yourself in the time and place and then suspend your disbelief because this was really bigger than life. Now, Ken, you're just hooking up with Michael Dowd. You talk about, again, it's very gradual, this uh, slide into justifying everything that Dowd would like you to justify. Tell us about this, this blue wall and how strong this blue wall. We all know, we've heard of it, but how strong is it and how illustrate with some of the stories about how you're tested with with Michael Dowd as a partner. Well, the so-called blue wall it, it's it's like a, like any brotherhood, any fraternity, any anything like that is where people get together and they form a bond and. The difference with the police department is the it, the guys that you're with, you have to rely on them when you're in the street and you need help and you're yelling for your life. You need them to respond. And if they don't trust you for whatever reason, because you you know, you know told the boss this so-and-so got a, a free pack of cigarettes or took a free meal, something as simple as that, they're not coming when you call for help. So you would learn to ignore all these little minor infractions. And as uh, I started working with Mike, that's how he would test his new partners. First, you know, we would go and drink together. And and most guys, they all drank on the job, especially when I came on. I mean, we drank with bosses. There was was no no, um, class like... like, uh, Bosses just drank with bosses. Detectives drank with detectives. We all mixed together. Everybody, everybody was uh, was friendly, and uh, Mike would test test you like that. Okay, so he he this guy's good. He takes a drink. Okay, let me go up a level. Let's see if we could go get a free meal. And then then he started talking to me about all the money and the drugs in the precinct, and that's not the average conversation between partners in a squad car. Guys in a squad car, they're usually talking about the women in their life. If they're married, they talk about their children. They're always talking about sports. Mike was constantly talking to me about money in the precinct, how much money was there, how much money we could grab and put in our pockets. And I'm I'm trying to grasp what what he's telling me, and I'm just not getting it. And then he starts telling me of his past corruption acts with previous partners that he did, and I'm saying to myself, there's, there's no way this happened. I can't see this happening. 
and I don't, I don't believe it happened, but I'm still it's soaking all into me. And then when he hits me with the, the first act of corruption, which was relatively minor, considering the things we do, do after this, and uh, we leave a, a burglary scene, and he reaches into his pocket and he he hands me a hundred dollar bill. And I look at him. I had no idea. I was like, "Where did you get this? What what is this from?" And he was like, "I I got it on the job. You know, this is for you." So that's mo- literally my moment of truth. What do I do? If I turn the guy in, I, like I say, I'm cutting my throat in the in, in the department. No one's ever going to work with me. If I ever need help, no one's going to come help me. Uh, I'm going to be the butt of really nasty jokes. I mean, there's guys that they just thought were were uh, um, giving up other cops and uh, they'd be throwing uh, dead rats in their lockers. They'd be going out to their personal cars. They would have four flat tires every other day. I mean, it, it really would make your life a living hell. So I know I can't turn the guy in. Now my next step is, okay, don't take the money, but Legally, I'm just as guilty because I was at the scene. I know he took it. So I end up taking the money, which is what I thought what my third option is. And I figured, okay, I'll just take this, put it away. It's not going to happen again. But then you go to the next scene, and it, you know the amount of money gets a little bigger and bigger and bigger. Before you know it, he's like, wow, this is like when I first got on the job with the drink, and this is just the way things are. Just It took me five, six years to learn this aspect of the job. And uh, it just gets easier and easier to a point where you're a full participant and it, it's like a shock and a feet in frenzy. It's every job you start going to, once that takes over, you're looking for money and or drugs. You're no longer looking for the regular reason to do your job, to to take care of what needs to be done or whatever. I mean, you're still doing those things, but your main goal now is to put money and or drugs in your pocket. And that that's how it takes over. And you're talking significant money, too. You talk about uh, at some point, you know, like a, a year's salary or half a year's salary. So we're talking very significant amount of money compared to the wage that you are, are taking in. Yeah, and sometimes at, at the time we're, before we're this you earning, would have... At that time, we were earning seven hundred, you know, eight hundred dollars biweekly. If you're not doing a heavy overtime to pay your check, and we're walking into a, a location, and there's, you know, five kilos of cocaine, and a kilo of cocaine is going for twenty thousand dollars at a time, and you know, there's fifty thousand dollars on the table. <laughs> you're you're covering your salary for you know two years with with one score. Yeah. Now the. It's understandable that the people that get ripped off are not too, you know, are not are reluctant to go run to the police and just, you know, chalk it up to uh, the price of doing business. But you guys not only are just finding cocaine, Michael pushes you and you, of course, go along with some very, very creative methods of making money, don't you? We actually go on the... Uh on the payroll of of drug dealers where we're protecting their organization and we're uh, um, giving them warnings of when narcotics is in the area and we're 
going after their competition. They tell us who their competition is, and we go after their competition. We uh, basically ride shotgun for them when they have to move drugs or money from one location to another. I mean, we've, we've become an integral part of their organization. And, and for, the, what about, for that, we, we, we probably underbid at the time because we really didn't know how big Diaz was in the drug world. We underbid, and we ended up getting paid by him $8,000 a week, which, you know, to my partner and myself, that, you know, it's a lot, that's a major amount of money. And uh, when we find out later on Diaz is such a big player, we probably underbid. Now, part of this is, too, is that Dowd has, has got a series of, of like, the psychopathic Yurku, Walter Yurku. Um, he has some people that are real loyal to them and have their own skill sets and are dangerous in a lot of ways, too. Um, again, how deep is this, and in, 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 how deep are you in this organization in terms of how much you know about everything that goes on, including getting rid of people? What do, you, what do you mean by getting rid of people? There's, there's, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's nobody that we got rid of. Let's let's put that on the line. Uh, as far as all the other cops that were involved in the uh, in the corruption, I, I was aware of everybody. Once once I was into that that circle with Dowd, he exposed me to everybody. Everybody that was in that circle, I knew everything that everybody was doing, and there were. Not necessarily everybody working with Dowd or for Dowd. Dowd and I were basically working for ourselves, and once in a while we would recruit somebody to work with us if we needed them. And uh, there were other groups of cops going out and doing their own thing, which is uh, where Yerku came in and uh, and a couple of other guys. Right. But we were all aware of each other. Now, a question for Frank. With internal affairs, what prompts, what is the situation that prompts a little old Suffolk County to be looking at, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead, and if so, um, what prompted him, Suffolk County, to look at this Michael Dowd and his behavior? Well, Suffolk County uh, is where Ken uh, lived, and um, it wasn't Suffolk County wasn't looking at Mike or even Ken at first. They uh, it, it, so so it, Suffolk County, if you can imagine New York being this big place, it, and it is, Suffolk County is the far reach of, of Long Island essentially. So it's it's far from the city; it's the suburbs, and um, came aware of. You know, uh, this is in the early 90s now, after Ken has left the New York Police Department, um, the Suffolk County uh, narcotics detectives became aware of, uh, you know, some coke dealing going on in a couple of local bars. And, uh, you know, these are detectives that are, you know, out in the suburbs. They go by the book. They follow the procedures. You know, you essentially follow the dope and follow the money. And as they follow that trail, it leads them to um, a guy's house. Uh, and, and at this guy's house is uh, Ken. Um, and Ken makes a phone call uh, asking to uh, check out, asking somebody 
to check out the license plate of a car that's uh, parked nearby. The officers, the detectives hear this, and they go, wow, he's calling the New York Police Department. What the heck is up with that? And eventually, you know, they put together a case um, that, you know, snares uh, the, the, the low-level dealers in the bars that uh, Ken was actually hoping would take over his business. And on the other end of it, takes down a bunch of New York City cops, including Mike Dowd. And when it, and when it happens it becomes a huge news story, so big that even David Letterman was joking about it, um, you know, in uh, his top ten list and uh, monologue. So uh, it, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite fascinating that, to me, that, you know, this, that we know about this not because of the New York City Police Department making some effort to clean, clean itself up, but because, uh, you know, a couple of deputies way out on Long Island uh, wanted to get, you know, some Coke out of a bar because that was the thing that deputies in Long Island did. Let's go back, uh, Ken, to, because we, we've just skipped ahead for this entire career with uh, Michael Dowd. You talk about his behavior, snorting Coke on, on the job every day and drinking on the job every day, and his behavior just escalating and becoming more aggressive and violent. Uh, tell us what makes you retire um, and why the partnership uh, dissolves at some point. And then tell us about retirement and your old partner. Well, the way the, the partnership ends up going away is uh, Dad and I had been working together for almost a year, and we were way out of control. I mean, just doing everything and anything that wasn't by the book that, that that's that's how we we were doing it and uh it just became about going to work and and making money not the normal way we were, we were making money through through drugs and working with Diaz and all that and what happened was Dowd was uh using cocaine daily basically and he got uh word that he was going to be ordered to do a, a urine test for narcotics. There's supposed to be a surprise test, but he found out it was going to be one on him. So what he did, he, he basically admitted himself to what we call the farm, which is alcohol rehabilitation. You can't go to narcotics rehabilitation because narcotics rehabilitation, they fire you. There's, there's no such thing. But alcohol is acceptable. They allow you to go to rehab for that. So he ends up going to rehab and that left me open in the precinct for all types of abuse from the bosses. And uh, they were throwing me on the most dangerous locations in the, in the, in the precinct uh, on a midnight shift. I'm standing out there at 3 o'clock in the morning in, in the middle of the winter, and they're coming by every 30 minutes just to make sure I'm still out there. In the old days, I'd be up in the lounge sleeping. So <clears throat> what happens is, Dow does his rehab, he ends up going to another precinct, and eventually things start going back to normal for me. I'm back in a patrol car, I'm working again, I find myself a new partner, and things are going smoothly. And what happens is uh, I get injured on the job, and uh, the police department medical unit ends up retiring me. 
And uh, from there, I go to my uh, retirement, and I'm um, pretty much happy with what's going on in life. I'm off the police department. Life is not crazy no more. Um, my wife goes back to work, and I'm at home taking care of my two kids, and everything was, was back to normal. I, I was getting back to the way things should be. And Dowd was picking up basically where he left off. He got a new partner, and he started the whole process over again. He was telling his new partner about things he did with me, and before his new partner knew what was going on, he was involved in a whole multitude of crimes with Dowd. And uh, I'd say about a year after I was retired, there was two other cops that came to me that worked in another precinct, and they were aware of what I did with Dowd, and they wanted to start dealing cocaine. So they wanted to know if I could hook up with Dowd and get cocaine for them so they could deal with cocaine. So I seen Dowd, and before you know it, we got a whole deal going, and Dowd and I are purchasing cocaine. Dowd sells some cocaine on his own. I'm selling cocaine to these other two cops, and then I meet a bunch of casual users. Before I know it, I'm a cocaine dealer, and I got four, five, six dealers working for me. And that's where Frank's story picked up, where uh, one of my dealers ended up selling to an undercover cop, they followed him around for a while. They put a wire on his telephone. And one day when I was in this dealer's house, this undercover came to the house. And uh, there was no drugs or nothing being. He was just hanging out. There was, you know, it was a drug house. A lot of people come out and hang out. They drink and do whatever. And uh, this dealer introduced him to me. And he was a new player to me, basically. So what I did every time I met a new player... I, with all these connections in the police department, I would run their names and their license plate numbers. So basically what I did, I ran the undercover's license plate, but I used my dealer's phone, not realizing that it was already wired. And that's where Suffolk County picked up that I'm running the license plate of their undercover cop. And that's how they came on to me. And from to me, they went to Dowd and Dowd's partner. And before you know it, six months down the line after this, we're all arrested. There was like 50 people arrested, and eight, eight of us were cops. Now, if you can, either Ken or Frank, uh, this is one of the most uh, movie-esque scenes in this book, is your wife, Ken Dory, is at home watching, uh, incredibly, the Rodney King uh, video, I, I believe, and there's a knock on the door. She looks outside to see who it is. Either Frank or Ken Pick up what Dory sees and what happens. Well, what happens is this is, this is the night there. Suffolk County is uh, basically going to make all their arrests, their 50 arrests. They're going to do a whole bunch of raids. And my wife is in I went out to pick up some money at my, one of my dealer's homes. And uh, my wife is home. It's like 10 o'clock at night. She put the two kids to bed. She's watching TV. Rodney King rides were on TV. And there's a knocking at the door. So basically, she's looking out the top bedroom window, and the whole front of the house is covered with police. You know, they're, all their guns are drawn. All, and uh, she was basically in shock. She, she didn't know what was going on. So she asked if she could, uh, you know, put the dog away. And uh, I had a big Rottweiler at the time, and... <laughs> The cops were, yes, please put the dog away. 
and they put the dog away. And once my wife opened the door, they came rushing in, and they raided my home. And uh, that was that was you know not not one of the uh, better moments in uh in this story for us. Now, Frank, what does the uh, what do the police do in terms of? Well, what, we know what the police do. They make these arrests. But uh, how does this play out in the media? And uh, and how does it? What does the the NYPD? What is their response to all of this? Well, uh, you know, it's a huge story. Uh, it's big. You know, you've got drug dealing cops. Uh, and these are larger-than-life cops, and every day the New York papers, you know, uncovered a little bit more about just how huge this was. And um, and as it, you know, became more and more obvious that um, after the arrest that uh, Mike and Ken were in a lot of trouble, uh, you know, the New York Police Department did everything that it could, as it had in other cases, to distance themselves from... Uh, you know, Mike and Ken's actions and the actions of the whole crew. Um, I think what you see, though, is interesting because, you know, you brought this up earlier, and I want to go back to it. Suffolk County is a tiny little place, and, you know, they're making a little routine drug bust that suddenly, you know, essentially opens up a huge sinkhole of all kinds of, you know, I think, what you could call some of the worst corruption imaginable. And uh, suddenly, you know, it's not just them that has to deal with this. Uh, You know, NYPD uh, Internal Affairs has to get involved, and eventually, uh, you know, the feds get involved because, uh, you know, you you just can't have... um, There's this whole other level of stuff that, that, you know, we don't address and probably wasn't addressed by the feds back then. If you imagine this rogue police precinct uh, taking guns and drugs and uh, arresting people without cause. I mean, you have massive amounts of civil rights violations going on in in the city. So, you know, you can, you can uh, probably understand from that perspective why the Fed stepped in, even though they don't say that's why they did. Uh, you know, they, they looked at this as a very serious RICO type of case, organized crime. That's the, the way the Feds call it. And, um, you know, now... Now think about now you've got you know the feds that are usually uh, prosecuting the Gambinos or uh, Tony Soprano uh, are you know going after Mike Dowd and Ken Urell um, with the full force uh, and weight of the federal government's uh, um, you know immense ability to not just put people in jail but to put them in jail for a long time and make them suffer and uh, you know I, I, that's where this that's where this ultimately leads and it leads to some very hard decision making on the part of everybody involved as that pressure becomes uh great and nearly unbearable. Now Ken, what is Michael's Dowd's reaction to all this? I already mentioned that he was and you had mentioned too how out of control he already was before this. How out of control is he now and what's he talking about? Before we get to this crazed plan of his well basically what we were talking about was uh two two different ends of the spectrum i was 
okay, let's accept our time and let, let's move on. You know, we're still young people. Thirty, I was 32 years old at the time, and uh, his his end of the spectrum was he wanted to devise a plan that we're going to somehow get out of this big mess that we're in. And uh, thanks to my wife, she hired me a, a very good lawyer, and I took his advice and his his experience and uh, took everything to heart and listened to what he said. And uh, Mike was, uh, he didn't want to hear it. He, he he had his whole other plan here to to get out of this this big mess that we're in, and uh, then the feds got involved, and I I go to Mike I go look the the feds are looking at us they they want to know what's going on, and uh, that upped his game more where you would think it. Okay, now the feds are looking at us. We're, here we are. We're out on bail. The feds were already in this mess with Suffolk County, and now the feds are looking at us. The game is over. Let's, you know, go get make the best plea deal we can and put this behind us. And he was adamant. No, now this is all the more reason we need to devise a plan to get out of this. So that that was the the, the two ends of the spectrum that I had to deal with. And this plan, um, he was looking at more time, at least in his mind. He thought he was maybe looking at 25 years. You thought you might be looking at, maybe with the lawyer's advice, a whole lot less. Again, how out of control is this guy? And as a, re, as a result, what's the plan that he comes forward to you with? Right. So what, what we were told, we were told that we were, we were looking at 25 to life because of the weight we had moved. And uh, I I sat down with my lawyer, and like I said, my lawyer was a very good lawyer. He's actually a judge out in Suffolk County now. And uh, he told me, look, we're probably going to end up making a plea deal. You'll probably get eight years. So from 25 to 8, I'm already ecstatic. All right, plea deal, you know, make the best deal you can. Then Suffolk don't want to go to court. They don't want to drag us out. Police department don't want to drag that out. I understand that. Let, let's make the best deal we can. So I told Dowd about that, and I guess that wasn't the advice he was getting from his lawyer so <clears throat> his plan was he had owned he owned a couple of houses he was big into real estate investing his money from all the illegal uh gains we'd had and he had three colombians that were living in one of his houses and they were aware we were in trouble because we were on the front page of the news every day so they came to him with this plan to uh grab uh the wife of a Colombian who owned owed another Colombian that was living in Dow's house for a bunch of cocaine, 10 kilos of cocaine that he absconded with. So they were going to take this out on his wife. The, the Colombians are, you know, we're not going to put you on a payment plan to pay back the 10 kilos of cocaine. You have to pay with your life. So uh, the guy who wanted to go after this woman's husband, who absconded, was the partner. It, it's a very convoluted story. Was was the partner of the guy who absconded. So to avoid him paying with his life, he had to turn over the woman and grab any money or drugs that were in the house to satisfy the debt. So he went to Dowd 
figuring Dowd could help him out and we could and Dowd and myself could help help them and they could help us. It was a big mutual plan. So <coughs> he tells me about this plan. I told him a hundred times, we're not doing it, we're not doing it, we're not doing it. And then when I told him about the feds looking at us, he went up a little. He's like, that's all the more reason we need to do this. The feds are looking at us. We're definitely going away forever. We have to get as much money as we can from this plan. And he wanted to take my wife, my kids, his wife and his kids, and flee the country down to Central America. So uh, I was like, we're not doing this. It's a crazy plan. We're not doing it. And he just wanted more and more to do it. So he had me come to his house to meet these Colombians that were living in his rental home. And they laid the whole plan out to me. And once that happened, I went back to my lawyer, and my lawyer said, look, you can't let this happen. You can't just ignore it. You, if they go out and do this and you you have knowledge of it, and I have knowledge of it now. That is going to up your your level in in the uh, in the sentencing guidelines. You have to go in and you have to cooperate with the federal government. So when I went back in the second time, I didn't tell Dowd that I went back in the second time, and I started cooperating with the federal government. And from there, they had me wear a wire, wire myself, and all the conversations and all the meetings I had with Dowd and these three guys that were living in his house, and we went. And uh, everything was caught on tape. Everything was done. What was that like in terms of you, again, had this wall of, this blue wall, but you also were friends with this guy. You were partners, but you were friends with this guy. You hung out with this guy. Um, how tough was it to justify that you had to do this? That you had no choice with this out of control person. I I was I was torn beyond belief. I didn't want to do it. I had no intention of doing it. But the more he pushed for it, I I really had no choice. And uh, I, I tried everything I can to avoid going to his house for meetings. I tried to avoid answering his phone calls because they wired up the phones and. Uh, Everything that I tried to avoid, he would initiate, and it it just it just buried him. He basically buried himself. I mean, yes, I went and I I wore the wire and I I did all these things, but there was no choice. He put me between you know a rock and a hard place. Once once everything was was in motion, there was no stopping it. Tell us about the the arrests, uh, Frank. And what results out of this new development here with Michael Dowd? Um, what is he sentenced to? Okay. Sorry about that. On the best route. <laughs> LA freeways and rush hour. Um, anyway, uh, so it's interesting that when Mike's arrested, he's you know, drunk, high, and carrying, uh, you know, contraband. And, um, you know, it doesn't bode well from him for him after that. Uh, part of his deal uh, with prosecutors in the case is that he will appear before uh, the commission, the city impaneled body of elders and statesmen and people that know better than everybody else who were asked to look into 
what happened in the New York Police Department and how it could be fixed. And um, so um, Mike appeared before this uh, this panel, and um, you know, quite charmingly, uh, told laid it all out, told everybody exactly, you know, what he did, how he did it, how he worked with Ken, how he worked with other men in the department, uh, how they scammed, schemed, and stole, and um, you know, it resulted in him getting, uh, you know, a, a, a harsh sentence, but not as harsh as it could have been. And after, uh, you know, a little more than a decade uh, in federal prison, you know, he was uh, let out. And, you know, um, today, uh, you know, you can follow Mike on Twitter and uh, you can, uh, of course, obviously watch the great documentary that inspired our book, Betrayal in Blue. Um, and, you, you know, uh, you can see that, uh, you know, he's still this larger-than-life uh, character. And, you know, it's interesting to me, too, because we're talking about him in, you know, uh, a, you know sort of uh, clinical way. Uh, Ken knows him personally. And, you know, I mean, from everything I've seen, he seems like the kind of guy that, you know, you'd want to sit down and have a beer with and then probably be convinced that you should do all the stuff that you wouldn't normally do. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of sad, all the things that happened to him, but uh, he seems to, you know, in some ways have turned around. Uh, I know that uh, I've read, anyway, that he advises the New York City Police Department from time to time on how to uh, spot corruption and how to, uh, you know, put an end to it. Um, and, uh, gosh, you know, I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a big change from, you know, a guy coming into his locker stoned and drunk and, you know, at the end of a, you know, decade-long scam of selling drug drugs in, you know, to Brooklyn's poorest uh, residents. Now, Burl, I wanted to ask you, because you've worked with uh, the fine journalism of Frank and, and this hands-on with Ken, with his excellent memoir that you based this book on, you and Frank and Ken, what did you see or what did the New York Police Department see in the biggest scandal that, that rocked the New York Police Department? What seemed to be learned from the lessons of that scandal? You wrote this book. You saw all the commissions, all of the investigations, all the scandals. Was this any different? Did they learn anything? What did you see? What Not, did you conclude? Uh, well, I'll tell you two important things. First of all, they didn't learn a damn thing. Nothing's any different. Things went on uh, pretty much exactly the same, just with a different cast of characters. You can anticipate another scandal uh, uh, on the horizon in the near future, and then you'll have another 15, 20-year break. Uh, they can talk all about their commissions and their reform measures and their new this and their new that, but it's the same old BS. Things continue. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've talked to, uh, to cops that were there after... Uh, Ken and Mike, and same old game, different participants. The important thing that I would like to make real clear that isn't clear in the documentary, and we try to make real clear in the book about Ken, is that in the documentary you are left with an erroneous impression, at least most people are, watch it, about Ken Urell. It appears, and is kind of implied in the documentary, that Ken rolled over on Mike to cut a deal for himself and basically ratted out his partner. This is not true. 
they were both busted. They were both out on parole, or you know, they they paid their uh, what do you call it? You know, they they're out on bail. My <coughs> excuse me, Mike comes to him with his crackpot plan, and Ken and he can tell me if I got this right or wrong. It seems to me that Ken was caught with the most horrific choice that a guy in his position could make. If he doesn't cooperate with the feds, his former partner and a guy to whom he is very close, like I almost say his best pal, is in very great danger of either being killed or spending the rest of his life in prison. Because the Colombians aren't going to leave any witnesses. It's a cockamamie plan and is just as liable to be killed as he is to be arrested by the feds. So what do you do? If you don't rat out your best friend, your best friends might get killed. If you do, you save his life, but someone's going to call you a rat the rest of your life. This, to me, is like Sophie's choice in a squad car. You know, it was no, it was a no-win situation. If he saves his best friend's life, he gets a bad reputation. If he doesn't, what the hell? I mean, to me, that seems the crux of what betrayal in blue was about. Either way, he's either betraying the badge or he's betraying his friendship. And which one do you do? And that, to me, was a horrifying decision that Ken had to make. And I think he made the right one because Mike is still alive and Mike didn't do life in prison. And I think that what Ken did, some people may say, well, he should have just kept his mouth shut. I think if he would have kept his mouth shut, there's a good chance that Mike would be dead today. All right. Now, Ken, you do get a chance to see Mike again, uh, to see what his reaction will be to, to someone that, with this wall of blue, this blue wall, this code, and to see what his reaction is to you. Tell us about that. Well, it was uh, a good t- 25 years. Of, you know, we had absolutely no communication since 92. Uh, and he got out of prison in uh, around 2005. And uh, we had no communication. And then uh, this documentary came along. And one of the scenes for the documentary, they flew me uh, into Brooklyn back to my old precinct. And I'm walking down the block, and standing there in front of the precinct is my old ex-partner, Dowd. And we looked at each other and uh, walked up to each other, gave each other a big hug, and basically tried to let bygones be bygones. And uh, obviously uh, that got thrown to the cutting room floor because I think the directors wanted more of a confrontation. So that wasn't in the documentary. But that's uh, that was our first meeting after 25 years. We gave each other a big hug. Right. Um, how has this been for you as, in terms of getting things off your chest, this book? How has the experience been for you so far? Well, just just the writing of the memoir itself was is very uh, cathartic. I mean, just getting it all off my chest and writing it down and it was uh a really emotionally draining but but good in a good way 
and uh, now having it uh, actually in print with uh, with Burl and Frank, uh, Betrayal in Blue is, uh, I think it could be a good, uh, hopefully, lesson or a manual for uh, young cops to uh, not make the stupid choices I made in my life. I mean, uh, presented with the choices they have, hopefully they make make the better decision to uh, go go the right path, go stay stay the straight and narrow. Now we just have a little bit of time, so I want to. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming on and talking about Betrayal in Blue. Uh, Burl, for those yes. that are interested, this, this is a Wild Blue Press release. So tell us a little bit about Wild Blue Press and if there's any ability to get signed copies or any kind of special. Oh, yeah. There's um, all so sorts tell us of a wonderful things. <laughs> Wild Blue Press, of course, is a, a wonderful publishing company. Uh, they also publish, as you know, uh, Frank and uh, by previous Book of Taste for Murder, which did very, very well. And they've re released Murder in the Family and uh, Man Overboard. And my, the one book of mine I love the most that no one buys, that you're quickly buying to buy, called Headlock, My Private Eye Mystery. On this one, Betrayal in Blue, I am very, very proud of this. And not just for myself, for whatever contribution I made, but Frank and Ken worked together so hard on this. I think I'm surprised they didn't wind up strangling each other from time to time, <laughs> but uh, they really did an incredible job on their end of it, and I, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, with this book, Betrayal in Blue, and it's available in all three formats. You could get it in paperback uh, from Wild Blue Press on Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble, wherever you uh, want to order your books, you can order direct from wildbluepress.com. You can also get it as a direct instant download ebook for your Kindle, uh, or for your Kindle reader uh, on your computer or your uh, phone or whatever, if you have a smartphone. It also available as an audio book uh, narrated by Ken Pierce, and they even had me do the introduction. And so all three formats, wow. and uh, they're delightful. <laughs> they, they make wonderful Christmas gifts, great stocking stuffers, and if you happen to live in the Big Apple, it's your best choice for uh, for a gift. And I think that Ken's absolutely right. Uh, if this book were part of a part of every cadet's education they'd know what to watch out for and you'd be a good way of screening people as well so and and i hope the book is used that way and if you'd like an autograph copy for your kindle uh go to authorgraph.com and you can have your kindle uh autographed which is unusual but it works right on well, thank you very much, Burl Bear and Frank uh, C. Girardeau. Gerardo and <laughs> Gerardo and sorry and Ken Urell. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming on and talking about Betrayal in Blue. Congratulations, fantastic read, and thank you for this uh, incredible interview. Thank you, and have a great thank evening. You. Thank you Welcome. so much. Thank you. Okay, bye, bye, gentlemen. Talk to bye. you all Good later. Night. All right. Bye. bye.